Okay, so today's daf is Yudalid in Beta. We are on the Mishnah, four lines from the top of Amud Aleph. Beit Shammai Omrim, Tavlin, Nidochin, Bemadoch, Shel Etz, Vamelach, Bepach. So according to Beit Shammai, if you are going to crush spices on Yom Tov, you have to use a Madoch, Shel Etz. You have to use a wood and normally use a uh, stone uh, thing to crush the... Um, to crush the uh, spices, but here you use one of wood to make a shinui. You have to make it a little bit different than usual. Vamelach, when it comes to salt, you use a either a pach, which is a um, which is a uh, like a, a vessel that is like a usually used for pouring things. You know, it's not something that's normal. It's like an earthenware thing that you usually used to hold liquids. You like use it to crush the spices with the bottom of it, I guess, or use etzapo, or use a like a wooden uh, kind of a spoon. But you don't use the normal, you have to do, make a shinui in, uh, in this. Beit Hillel says when it comes to spices, you can do it the normal way with a, with, with a uh, stone tool. But they agree that when it comes to salt, you should make a shinui and use a wooden kind of a uh, pestle. So they, they don't require you to do it... Um, uh, they don't require you to do it to the uh, to the level that Beit Shammai says. Beit Shammai require an even further shinui that you have to use like the back of a uh, you have to use a, a spoon or you have to use the back of a um, of a an earthenware vessel. According to Beit Hillel, for for spices you don't need to change it all, and for salt you can just use like what Beit Shammai says you use for spices, which is the wooden banging thing, the buchna it's called, you know that part. Now. Um, the Gemara says everybody agrees. Everybody agrees you have to have a shinui if you're going to crush salt on on Yom Tov, right? Now, obviously, the whole thing here is that even though ochel nefesh is permitted on Yom Tov because it's something that requires a lot of effort and it's also something which is uh, often done in large quantities uh, that are not just for immediate eating. Like you don't usually crush salt just for that immediate eating or just for that immediate cooking or or crush spices just for the immediate use. There's usually a longer term uh, commitment there. So since it's more like a work activity, that's why they require the shinui. So it says everyone agrees by salt. My time, I'm Rafuna for Rav Chizda. Rafuna Rav Chizda argue. Chada Mar Kol Tiro Kulan Tichod Melech. Ben Kol Tiro Tichod Tavlin. The Tichod Tavlin. The point is that every dish that you make requires salt, right? Every, you put salt in everything, right? So therefore, you know that you're going to need salt. And so since you know you're going to need salt, you should have prepared in advance. When it comes to other kinds of things, you don't know what you were going to make, let's say, for the Yom Tov or what you were going to need. Oh, I need to crush myself some of this spice or that spice or whatever. You didn't realize you were going to need it because you didn't have your menu planned out 100%. But salt, you know you're going to need, so you should have done it before. So therefore, if you're going to do it on Yom Tov, you have to do it with a Shinui. Um... No, the reason is not because of preparation. The reason is because of quality. In other words, salt doesn't go bad. If you crush salt three days ago or you crush it five minutes ago, you don't tell the difference. Other spices, you crush them, you leave them out, they start to lose their potency over time. So it's fresher to be done on the Yom Tov. So therefore, Beit Zilel says, we understand why you wanted to crush the spices on the Yom Tov because it's the best that way. You get the best quality that way. But the salt, what difference does it make when you crush it? You could have crushed it before. Okay, so might benayu. What's the difference between these two reasons? In other words, is the reason because you should have prepared and known what you were going to cook in advance, or is the reason because you wanted to leave the spices for um, the? Uh, in other words, you could look at it this way. According to the first reasoning, right? According to the first reasoning, really, um, 
which is that you should have known what you were going to plan. So you could have known what you should have known what you're going to plan is basically a way of saying that um, that there's more of a reason to prohibit salt. In other words, it's more about pro, it's more about being stricter about salt because you should have known that you were going to use the salt. Whereas according to the second reason, which is that you, uh, which is that spices maintain their potency longer, so it's like really we would say that you can't crush anything on the yom tov. Right, but since spices, you have a reason, so we tell you that you can crush them in the normal way on Yom Tov. Right, so almost like one is a positive, one is a negative. You could look at it that way. Either way, um, the answer is. So, what's the difference? My benayu, igbenayu, the adam morika. That if he knew what he was going to cook already in advance. In other words, in that case, so if you're if you're looking at it from the perspective of planning, and the guy knew what he was cooking on the day of Yom Tov, and he didn't crush the spices anyway, so then spices and melach should be the same thing. Then it should be treated the same, and we should require him to have a shinui to do either one, because in that case he knew in advance what he was going to be cooking for Yom Tov, and he should have prepared in advance. On the other hand, um, according to the view that no spices are always best prepared on the day that they're used. So then it doesn't matter whether you knew in advance what you were going to cook. You still might have wanted to prepare them at the last minute so that you get the best quality, right? Inami b'morika. Alternatively, we could be talking about morika is um, saffron, I think, right, in English. Um, and so, which is something that is uh, so gen- so widely used, so it's more similar to, uh, uh, to um, right, so as she says, sheish k'dirashe, in other words, if you have something that, um, that if you did it the day before, uh, the karkom, it's talking about the saffron, right? This is a spice that even if you did it the day before, it would not go bad. So now that means that it's more like salt. Right? It's not about that you use it in everything, because saffron is not in everything, but it's about that it doesn't go bad. So in other words, if you're looking at it as a question of anything that doesn't go bad, you should have done in advance. Anything that's fresher on the day that you crush it, you're allowed to uh, crush it on the day. So then saffron is something that would be like salt. You should have to do it in advance because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't lose its uh, potency so much. On the other hand, if it's a matter of planning your meals... Right, so then, in a case where the guy knew what he was going to be cooking on Yom Tov, then again, regular spices and salt become the same. Because you could say he would—he always knows he's going to use salt, but he doesn't always know what what spices he's going to use. But if he knows what spices he's going to use, then he should be preparing in advance, and he should be crushing them in advance, according to that opinion. So you're going to have nafkaminot. You're going to have differences between the two interpretations in cases where you knew you were going to use it, but it won't go bad, right? Or it it it, it will go bad. But, uh, you know, but, but you didn't know you were going to use it or so on. Now, the, um, you can have one without the other. Now, No, Rabbi Shmuel, actually, you can crush anything you want, even salt, the normal way. You don't have to follow any of these rules. What about the fact that we just said that everyone agrees that you need to do, you need to crush salt in an unusual way? He's saying like a different... Everybody agrees, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel both agree, that you can crush spices uh, the normal way, including, together with them, salt. The only question was, what do you do when you're, when you're just doing salt? 
litzli, aval lo litnera. Beit Shammai said there's two restrictions. First of all, you have to use a tool that's different. You have to either use the back of a flask, like an earthenware flask, or you have to use a wooden spoon, and you can only crush the amount litzli, the amount that you use for roasting, which is very little. Aval lo litnera, not the amount that you use for a pot. In other words, it's very restricted. Beit Hillel omrim, bechol davar, you can do it with whatever you want. Bechol davar salkadatach, really? Beit Hillel says you can do it with whatever you want. That's not true. Our Mishnah said that he said that you have to have a limit on what tool you use. Ela ema lechol davar. What he meant was for anything, meaning that the quantity, there's no limit on the quantity. In other words, according to um, according to uh, this interpretation, when you are when you have a bunch of spices and salt is one of them, and you're crushing everything together, so you can do it the normal way. But if you're just crushing salt, that's where you have the machloket between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. Here we have the additional condition of Beit Shammai that it also has to be a small amount. Not only it has to be with a different tool, it has to be with a small amount. And as we said before, either that's because there's no justification for uh, crushing salt on the Yom Tov because anyway, you should have known you were going to use it, you should have done it before, or because it's something that doesn't lose its flavor. Now, um, when you crush stuff, when you crush the uh, uh, spices, you should, or, or uh, salt rather, you should tilt the 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 container, you should tilt the kli that you're using as you do it. That's the vidoch, and then crush. In other words, that's enough of a shinoi. According to that, it sounds like you don't necessarily have to uh, change the tool that you're using, right? Rashi says you can do it even be madoch shel even, but the shinoi, the small shinoi you have to do, you can even use a um, a stone crushing tool, but you have to lean it to the, you can lean it to the side, and that's enough. Rav Sheshet Shemakol Buchna. Rav Sheshet heard the sound of the crusher, the spice crusher. Uh, crushing salt. Amar, I love me de beitaihu. I know that's not coming from my house because I don't allow any salt crushing in my house. Vidilma atzluyatzle. How did he know? Maybe they were tilting the vessel on the side as they were crushing it. No, he heard that it had a very clear sound, not the kind of sound that you get when you do it on an angle. Vidilma tavlinavu. Maybe it, they were crushing spices. Spices, you don't need to tilt the dish. They have a different sound. They have more of a, uh, 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 like a barking type of sound, it sounds like. You know, a different kind of a deeper sound than salt. And that's how we knew they were crushing. It was somebody crushing salt and they weren't crushing it with a tilted vessel. So he knew it wasn't from his house. Now, um, that you cannot make tisani. Tisani is like where they would take the, this grain and they would cut it into four pieces like we learned about it actually uh, uh, it was mentioned in in other masechtot we talked about this dish that they would make where they would cut it into four pieces eight pieces they would take the grain and they would subdivide it into tiny pieces it says you shouldn't crush with a machteshit with this type of a crushing uh, uh, cutting uh, tool and you shouldn't make tisni tarte is that really two things what's the reason you can't make tisni because since you cannot use that tool for crushing, which is normally used for uh, such heavy-duty work, so therefore you can't make the tisni. Why can't we just learn that we're not allowed to use the machteshed? Why do you have to know that, uh, why do you have to mention the tisni at all? 
איתנה אין קודשים ומכתשת, אבל מן העני במכתשת גדולה. אבל במכתשת קטנה אין מה שפיר דמי, because if we just said don't use a מכתשת, remember the מכתשת is what the כהן גדול, מחזירה למכתשת בערב יום הכיפורים, that's uh, tomorrow's עבודה, uh, וערב יום הכיפורים, כדי, so אומרים, דקה מן הדקה, right? So the מכתשת was the, the um, what they used to crush the spices to a finer state. Um, in the Beit HaMikdash, so it says you can't use, you might have thought you were only allowed to not use a big Machteshet, but you could use a small one. So that's why it comes to say that no, Kamash uh, Malan, that you're not allowed to use a small one either. Okay, now, V'hatanya en kotshim Machteshet gdola, v'kotshim Machteshet ktana. Didn't we learn in a bright exactly the opposite, that you're not allowed to use a large one, but you're allowed to use a small one. So, Amar Abaye, Kitanya nami matnita Machteshet gdola, Tanya, you're right. Our Brita here is only talking about a, a large one, okay? So it's not. So Rashi explains, In other words, according to Abaye, it's two halachot, not one. Not like we originally said, that why can't you use a machteshet to crush up, to crush things? Oh, because, um, because you, you, why can't you make tisni rather? Because you can't use a machteshet. No, he's saying it's two things. One is you can't use a large machteshet. And secondly, you can't make tisani even with a small machteshet because it's too labor intensive to make that subdividing of the, each grain into four pieces, okay? So the groats, I think it's called in English, right? You can't do that. Now, what is it? What do you, what, uh, so that means you could use the small machteshet for other things, just not for those groats because it's too labor intensive. According to Abayit, it's too alachot. You can't use a large machteshet. And with a small machteshet, don't make groats, but you can make whatever else you want. Tanya, so that's what it says. Tanya. So Rava Amar, no, lo kasha. Halan valu. Now Rashi says, explains. Leolam matam kamar. It is really connected. In other words, you can't make the groats because you can't use the machteshet. And you're not even allowed to use a small machteshet at all. Okay? But there's a difference. We are not allowed to use um, a, even a small machteshet. They, right, it says that um, this is for us, this is for them. What does it mean? Meaning, halan, this is for us, the litlan avdei demizalzele. We don't have servants who play tricks. In other words, if we have a large machteshet and a small one, we can rely on our servant that if we tell them to make something with the small one, they're going to make it with the small one. But lehu, they, assuming, uh, presumably he's talking about uh, uh, in... Um, in uh, Eretz Israel, they had servants who were not reliable. So what they would do was they would go and they would uh, they would use the large machteshet because, of course, it made their lives easier. Uh, it made their lives easier to use the large one, right? A large thing is going to get the job done quicker. And they would say, "Yeah, yeah, we use the small one. We use the small one." They would lie. So therefore, they couldn't have even a small machteshet allowed in Eretz Israel, whereas. In um, Bavil, they were allowed to use the small machteshet because they could trust their slaves. Right? Now, Rav Papi, one time Rav Papi came to the house of Mor Shmuel. They brought him like, Daisa means oatmeal actually, but it's the same thing. It's like a type of a grain, sub, sub you know, divided up. It, might, it was probably more likely cream of wheat than oatmeal because it probably wasn't oats. Because in those times, they didn't really eat oats. Oats were considered like... Uh, uh, horse food or something like that. They, they didn't really eat it. That's probably some kind of a uh, cream of wheat, farina, something like that. Velo achal. He didn't eat it. Why didn't he eat it? Vedel machteshet tanavdua. 
because he was worried that maybe they made it in a large machteshet. But why did he have to assume that? Why didn't he assume it was in a small machteshet? He saw that it was too good. Like, you know, sometimes you see something, it's too professional. It's too, too finely ground. There's no way that they did it with one of the hand ones. It must have been with an industrial one. And therefore, he didn't want to eat it. How did he know that maybe they did it yesterday? Maybe they did it yesterday. And uh, and it was okay that they used the large machteshet because they did it yesterday. Said no because the chazed the hava kalif tzara he saw that it was peeled freshly peeled. You could see it was like bright. You know when you first cut something, it has a brightness to it. It fades after a while, right? You cut a vegetable or fruit, it's bright in the beginning. So he could see it was just done, right? Or it could be that. Um, generally speaking, maybe Rav Papi would have eaten the farina, but since he knew in that particular house there were servants who were misbehaving servants, he didn't trust them. So he didn't give them the benefit. In other words, the, the difference is that according to the first answer, if you see evidence that suggests that a chilul yom tov happened that produced the food, you shouldn't eat it. Right? But according to the second answer, you don't have to be such a detective. You can always assume the best unless there are people involved that are bad actors that you assume uh, might have been responsible for uh, for doing the wrong thing, as it's saying that there were. Now the Mishnah says, if a person wants to separate kitni, do borer on kitniot, meaning they would usually um, separate them from their shells and stuff like that, on Yom Tov, or from the other like uh, extraneous material that was on them um, in, on Yom Tov, you see more of that here, because you know when you go to the shuk, like the the fruit is like dirty. It has like, you know, all kinds of stuff all over it because like it's brought right from the farm or whatever and it's put on the thing. So in a lot of the places, like there's dust and there's all kinds of stuff all over the fruit. It's not like, uh, it's not like in supermarket and like uh, Whole Foods where every they t- polish every apple with a, uh, you know, with a special cloth. So it shines, you know, or something like that. It's not like that. Anyway, so if you sit, so they would put these beans in the water to clean them, or they would, or they would just, they would sift out. Beit Shammai says you should take the ochel from the psalm, which is what you do on Yom, in Shabbat also. On Shabbat, you always have to take the good from the bad. You don't take the bad from the good, you take the good from the bad. He says that's what you should do, take the good from the bad, and eat it. He, a person can select the way they normally do. On his body, meaning putting it on his chest or something. You can also use like a plate where he tilts the plate and some things will move and other things will stay still. Or canon is like a type of a uh, tube that they would shake. Either way, but they shouldn't use a tavla nafan or like sieves that are used for like professionally sifting things. Meaning, the other things are like makeshift. You take a plate and you tilt the plate so the heavy things go down and the light things stay up. That's not really a, a tool that is designed for that purpose. You're using it. But these are tools designed for the purpose. Tavlat and Nafal you shouldn't use because it's too industrial. The problem is on Yom Tov, it's too industrial. Rabban Gamliel Omer, Av Rabban Gamliel says, you can even soak and then take it out. In other words, she says, you can soak the beans in the water and then what happens is, that the dirt will go up or the dirt will go down and you can take the solid out and you can have just the good stuff left. Now the Gemara says, Tanya, we live in a bright time. When does it say that you should take the ochel? You should take, the, the, when does, I'm sorry, when does Beit say that you can take 
the psolet, the sharu beitilel litol psolet, that you can actually do the opposite. Not like on Shabbat. You can take the bad away from the good. When do they say that? Only if there's more food than bad stuff. But if it happens that there's too, there's so much refuse, there's so much garbage, right, that it's more than the food, then you should just take the food. Now, seemingly what that means is why, because it's going to take so long to get rid of the psolet. Because you're taking the, why would you, you always want to do the least taking that you have to. So you want to assume there's less bad than good. So you're going to, by taking the bad out, you're saving time. If there's more bad than good, then you're saving time by taking the good. But the Gemara asks, but if it's the case that there's more bad than good, really, if that's the case, so, um, so, so it says, uh, it will become mukte. I mean, if you have so much bad that there's only a tiny bit of good, the whole thing's going to be mukte anyway. How could you handle it? So it says, It doesn't mean that there's actually more bad than good. Because if there were more bad than good, then the whole thing could be, could actually just end up being mukte and not even usable. But what it means is something that takes more time, not quantitatively, meaning, we tell you, take whatever is going to take the least time because we're trying to minimize your tircha. On Yom Tov, we're trying to minimize your exertion. We're not so concerned about the technicalities of the melacha of borer. That's the point. We're not worried about that. What we're worried about is what's going to take more time. So normally to pick out a few dirt or junk or stems or whatever from something takes less time than to take all the good out. Right, but if it's gonna take, if it's gonna be easier to take the good out and leave the bad, that's what you should do. If it's gonna be easier and more time and cost effective, so to speak, time effective to efficient to remove the psolet, that's what you should do. That's what Beitilel means to say. Okay? Now, you can soak the stuff and then take the garbage out. Tanya says in the bright, they used to take in the house of Rabban Gamliel, a bucket full of adashim, full of adas, you know, full of uh, um, uh, lentil, right? And then what do they do? They put umetzifina lavmaim, they pour water on it, and then v'nimtza ochel lemata, upsolet lemala. What happens is that the food would sink to the bottom and the straw and everything would rise to the top and then they would just take the top off. A lot of people do that with like berries and stuff like that, right? They put them, they soak them, or whatever, certain types of vegetables, things like that, they soak them and then like stuff comes up and they take it off. Right? They, people do that. So it says you should do that. Vatani ipcha. Another brighter has the opposite. That the ochel goes up and the psolet goes down. It depends. If you're looking at dirt, dirt, right? It has greater density. It's going to go down. Right? If you're looking at um, straw, it's going to float upwards. It has less, the density is lower. Right? It's going to go up. So therefore, it depends. But the point is that either way, you're, you're using the water to separate the psolet from the ochel in that case. Now, the Mishnah says, The only thing you're allowed to send as a gift on a Yom Tov is a fully prepared meal. Don't send raw stuff. Okay? Beitilel says, no, you could send, um, you can send, uh, 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 living animals like a behema, chayav of wild animal chicken ben chayin ben shchutin. They could be alive or they could be dead. Mishalchin yenot shmanim uslatod uvekitniot. You could say wine, oil, flour, beans of alot vua, but not grain. For Rabbi Shimon matir vitvua. 
But Rabbi Shimon allows tvoa. He allows grain. Now Rashi explains here that, that Beit Shammai's reasoning is you have to send something prepared, like cut meat or cut fish, something the person, it doesn't have to be actually prepared, meaning cooked already. What it means is that it has to be something that's going to be for that day. And remember, they didn't have refrigerators back then. So if you deliver somebody raw meat, they're going to eat it that day, right? So the idea was that whatever you're giving them should be used for the Yom Tov. You shouldn't give them anything else. But what about tvua? Why can't you give tvua? Why can't you give grain? Because there's nothing you can do with it on Yom Tov because you can't, you're not going to grind it up and do all of that on Yom Tov. You're not allowed to do all the, that part of the process of, uh, of food preparation on Yom Tov. So it has no purpose for you on Yom Tov. So you shouldn't give it. However, um, Rabbi Shimon says, no, you could. Because what you could do with the grain is you could cook it in a, um, in a pot and you could crush it with one, with a small, uh, mortar or whatever, small machteshet. Right? So you, you could potentially, uh, use the grain on Yom Tov, and so therefore you're allowed to give the person the grain on Yom Tov. That's what Rashi says. Now, Gemara says, Tanit Rav Yechiel, O Bilvat, Shelo Yasenu Beshura. You should not do it Beshura. In other words, you should not make a, um, a gift with like a parade where you go and you have like a whole entourage to go honor somebody carrying a gift because it looks like you're going out to the market with that. It doesn't look like you're sending someone a gift. Tana, En Shurap Chutam Adam. That means three people, meaning you shouldn't go with three people to deliver gifts because it looks like some kind of a commercial activity. But Ravashi asked, What if you have three gifts and you give one to, you have three friends, and so you tell each friend to carry one gift and bring it to this person who's the recipient. Is that okay? Because they're not all gathered around the same gift. In other words, when does it look like a commercial activity when you have three guys going with one item? But maybe if you have three guys with three, di- three items, it's okay. So it says, on that we don't know the answer. And we leave it as a uh, teku. We don't know the answer. Now, Rabbi Shimon Matir with what? Tani Rabbi Shimon Matir with what? Kigon chitin lasod mehen ludiot. So we need to know from them Why did Rabbi Shimon say you could send somebody raw grain on Yom Tov, even though it's not really ready to be used typically? So it says they, because you could make a certain type of a makeshift wheat food from the wheat. You could make a certain type of a. Um, where sisin is something made from the lentil, you could make something from the, uh, for, the, for the animals with it. In other words, it has a use, even though it's not the typical, the point is it's not the typical use that you're going to make out of it. Right? Normally a person is going to keep that grain till after Yom Tov, they're going to make a regular bread. But since there's something they could do with it on Yom Tov, you're allowed to send it. That's the Chidush. Now, the Mishnah says, You could send uh, Kelim means really like clothing, whether they are fully sewn or not. Even if they have shatnes in them. Okay? As long as they have some holiday purposes. We'll see what that means. But not one of those sandals that has the nails in it. We learned in Masachet Shabbat that you're not allowed to wear in Shabbat and Yom Tov. Right? And also not an unsewn shoe because you can't even use it. It's like open. Like the thing is open. It's not, there's nothing you can do with it. Okay? Now it says, and Rabbi Udaomer, also not a white shoe, because there would be a white shoe, and then they would get an expert who would like darken it and make it presentable. Nobody would ever wear the white shoe, okay? So this isn't like uh, some West Coast uh, type of thing where they, 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 they didn't wear white shoes. They, they, it had to be black, so it wasn't something. So the point is that even though, Rabbi Uda's Chidush, I think, is that even though 
practically you could put those on your feet and walk outside, it would work. But since nobody would wear it until it got blackened by the uman, someone's going to come and do that by the expert, so you can't, uh, you, you wouldn't send it. Right, that's why he says, You can only send that which is going to be used on Yom Tov. In other words, you're allowed to send gifts on Yom Tov of things like clothing and food that will actually be or can actually be used on the Yom Tov itself. Now, the Gemara says, We understand a sewn garment is good for wear. Even a garment that's not sewn yet you could use it as a blanket or something like that. It's still functional. Right? But why can you send shatnez? Shatnez is for not, you can't use it for anything. So, maybe you'll say you could sit on shatnez, but you can't. It says shatnez should not go on you. According to the Torah, technically you could put it under you, just not on you. The only thing is, because maybe one fret, if you sit under it, it might curve over you and cover you, and then you're violating shatnez, so you have to leave it. You're not allowed to have it under you either. Okay? So that wouldn't be the purpose of having an, a shatnez garment on Yom Tov. Maybe you'll put something in between you and the shatnez uh, cloth, and it'll be okay. No. So there's a long list of uh, sources for this, going all the way back to Jerusalem. Even ten uh, bedspreads on top of each other. You're sitting on top of the tenth one, and all the way at the bottom is the is the other one. Is the shatnez? Similar to the halacha we see in many places with the laws that are the rabbanan. Like it talks about even if the, the can, you can't eat, read, you can't read by the light of a candle on Shabbat. And even if it's 10 komot up and there's no way you could possibly adjust the light, still, same thing. So here, even though it's impossible that the, that the garment, the fabric of shatnez, on, underneath 10 mattresses is going to touch you when you're on top of the 10th mattress, the rabbis made a rule, that's it. Lo plug, we say. They don't make a distinction. Now, we say, Ella, bevilon. What could be shatnez that you could use? A vilon. A vilon is a curtain. Right? A curtain that you hang. Now, But that's not good either because we all know that when you're cold, the shamash, the waiter or the butler would, you know, would go over to the window and he would curl himself up in the nice warm curtain when it was cold. So he used that also. So how could you have a shatnez curtain? If people are going to use it. It says, Ela bekashin. We're talking about begadim kashin. She'en mitchamemim. Muta l'sheva lehen even Rashi says here. And this is a big discussion between the Rishonim. Not everybody agrees with that. People argue with that. But that's what Rashi says here. He says that the hard, if it's hard fabric, even though it's made of shatnez, you could sit on it. Why? Because it doesn't curl up. The nature of it is not to curl up. And like Ravuna, the son of Rav Yehoshua said that this like felt, like this hard felt kind of material, you're allowed to sit on it even though it might be shadnez because it doesn't provide any warmth because it's like, it's like a canvas type of field, you know, it doesn't give you any warmth. Something that, that, that you can't sink into it because it's too hard, it doesn't give you warmth. So that's what they're talking about. Now, Amara Papa, Ardalin, Enbehen Mishum Kilaim. 
that the uh, the Ardalin, again, is talking about a Rashi says here, it's talking about something that they used to put under their shoes. Okay? So, um, the and uh, it says there's no, because these are hard, something hard that's placed under the, the shoes, therefore they, um, uh, therefore they are, they're not subject to Shatnez because they don't give any warmth. <coughs> Similarly, money pouch, a pouch of money, even though it's against your body, it's a hard fabric. It's made of something hard, so it's not going to give you warmth. Okay? Um, so if, it, if it's something which is uh, the kind of pouch that they hold uh, seeds in it, it's a softer kind of pouch, it is subject to kilayim if you put it against your body. Okay? Uh, Ravashi said, no, whether the pouch that you have is for money or the pouch that you have is for seeds, it doesn't matter. It's not something designed to provide warmth. It's something designed to carry something. So the fact that it's against your flesh doesn't mean it's warming you and now you have to worry that it's, uh, that it's shotness. So when it comes to pouches of money, pouches of seeds, things like that, we don't have to worry about that. When it comes to hard fabrics, the way that uh, the machloket rishonim, if I remember correctly, if I remember correctly, was is the idea that um, hard fabric is not subject to shatnez? Does that mean you can even sit directly on it? Like there's no idea, issue of shatnez at all, or it means that the gzera that if you're ten stories up, or you know, there's something in between you and it, that it that that doesn't apply to hard fabric. Because it's like a gzera already. Because it's too distant. That might be the machloket. I think I remember that that's what it was. Um, either way, Bezad Hashem, I'll uh, hopefully either see everyone tomorrow before Kippur, if we can, to um, to make the uh, shiur, or we'll have to um, uh, get a recording out. I'll Bezad Hashem get a recording out. And then uh, for Motzei Yom Kippur, I'll send you guys a recording so that as soon as you come back to break the fast, it'll hopefully be there and you'll be able to... I'll already be sleeping, and you'll be able to uh, to catch up. Okay.